I'm Lillian Vasquez with Lifestyles on KVCR. Thanks for listening. On today's show, I'll speak with Sabrina Gonzalez, Executive Director for the Civil Rights Institute, Inland Southern California. This new organization is located in downtown Riverside and is the voice of civil rights in the Inland Empire, representing many diverse groups. Sabrina shares the mission of the Civil Rights Institute and the projects they're working on to advance that mission, including the opening of their affordable housing campus, Mission Heritage Plaza. Sabrina explains why they're making what she calls good trouble for generations to come. Here's my conversation with Sabrina Gonzalez, Executive Director for the Civil Rights Institute in Lynn, Southern California. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. So this is a relatively new organization here in the Inland Empire. Please share what the organization is and its mission. Fantastic. So Civil Rights Institute of Inland Southern California. So we're located in downtown Riverside. Um, We had our grand opening in October, and we just officially opened to the public here in January of 2023. Overall, our biggest components is that we want to be this enduring promise that we're going to be here to stand up for social justice and make good trouble for generations to come. So for us, by causing the trouble, we're able to make our voices heard for equality. And we also want to make sure we're known that we really believe in the power of education to heal to bridge divides, to inspire meaningful dialogue, and to kind of raise up allies and champions for social justice and civil rights today and tomorrow. I love how you describe it as make good trouble. That is so positive and really gets the point across. So that's quite clever. Thank you. Um, I can't take full credit for that. That's something that our visionaries had kind of in mind, and the two of them were really known for uh, making good trouble throughout the city and in the region. That's good. Okay, so now I did say it was relatively new, and it is really relatively new. Yes. (laughs) So it's exciting. Let's talk about the many projects that will work to advance the mission, and we can talk about and learn about each of them. Tell me maybe about the affordable housing campus, Mission Heritage Plaza. Mission Heritage Plaza is actually an ode to partnership. So what makes it so unique is that this spot, Mission Heritage Plaza, is really a monument to three organizations. So we have a mixed-use project between Wakeland Housing Development Corporation, which is the affordable housing component, and then we have Fair Housing Council of Riverside County, which it's the new office buildings for them here on the first floor, and then it leads into the Civil Rights Institute of Inland Southern California. And it really shows what happens when we can kind of come together, we have a shared vision, and we have a commitment to do well for many. What makes it also very unique is that in this space, uh, there's 72 units of this affordable housing. So it's dedicated to the community. It's bringing investment in that. We're going to also support people for their rights regarding housing and understanding and educational components. And then the Civil Rights Institute is really unique because it's an exhibition center. We have a multimedia center uh, that was sponsored by Alter Credit Union. And then we have Bank of America Diversity Center. That has allowed us to be like a rental space so that there'll be community gatherings, um, people to work on furthering projects, nonprofits, and just mission-aligned components. And then, as I mentioned, the exhibition space. So that is our Riverside African-American Historical Society exhibition space. So about every six to eight months, we anticipate being able to change over our exhibitions. Our inaugural one is Still I Rise, and it's the Black IE Fight for Justice. And it allows people to come in. It's very uh, digital forward. So we have QR codes, allowing people to kind of have a deeper dive into the materials. 
because the goal here is to really not be just a trophy. We want people to have that educational experience to further learn about what's happening in the region, what has happened, and be mindful that although much work has been done, there's still plenty of work to be done. All right. Well, let's talk about the housing units that you're speaking of. Is this a short term? Once they move in, they get to stay for as long as they are able to be there. How does that part work for the housing itself? The housing units will be rented to individuals and families earning 60% or less of the area median income. 25 of the apartments will be designated for permanent supportive housing for veterans, and that includes those with disabilities and some have been houseless uh, are on the verge of houseless. I can speak a little bit more to where the current standing is and the status of the affordable housing. Right now, 40% of the units have been moved into. They had a few delays with construction, and they have, I think, a few units that are being waited on. But in terms of signed leases, they are all accounted for except for two that are, are veterans' housing. But they're anticipating a big push for a move-in by the end of this week. So we anticipate a lot more, and they're going to look to push through and complete majority of those housing components. Well, that's really exciting that um, there is going to be some housing there, 72 units, as you explained, uh, apartments there. And was it old that we refurbished? Was it new from the ground up? How did that process take place? So the CRI is really, or CRISC, is really the centerpiece of the 92,000-square-foot Mission Heritage Plaza. So this complex is a 72 units. It's all brand new, affordable workforce housing, and it was built from the ground up. Um, Previously, it was the Fair Housing Council of Riverside County. It was like a house that they were utilizing for their office space. Um, And so they demolished that, and then they had the groundbreaking in October of 2020. And that really allowed the community to get invested into the project. And we saw that for our funders, for program partners, and kind of like enlisted this excitement for what was to come next. And so the the building is set up and the plaza is set up where there's building A, where it's first floor commercial, uh, Fair Housing and Civil Rights Institute. And then it goes up five stories. So two through five are the housing. And then there's building B, which is a, a smaller section of it and has 12 units. And I believe those 12 units are kind of like townhouses. So they um, have two floors to them. And, you know, the idea behind it was we want affordable housing to be a place of confidence, a place of, of beauty, and to really be unique in that standpoint. So it really was done well through our partners and we get lots of compliments. In fact, just the other day at the Riverside Mayor's State of the City Address, Mission Heritage Plaza won the Beautification Award 2023 with a distinction. Well, congratulations on that. Anytime there's a, a new building going up and it's just beautifying the area and it's for good purposes of housing people, it's always exciting. Let me reintroduce my guest to Sabrina Gonzalez. She is the executive director for the Civil Rights Institute Inland Southern California. So let's talk about some of the, you mentioned them briefly, but I'd like to break them down. There is a oral history project. What does that consist of and what does it look like? Great. So we're still building this out, but our plan for it. So we want to have our oral history projects. These are going to be special projects that we put together. And there's going to be two components. So one component of it is going to be our scholarly component. So we're going to do some work. We're going to have some consultants. We are going to connect with local universities. And we're going to probably bring in a number of people over the next two years to capture their story. You know, we'll have set interview questions 
and we'll really work through to tell the very important stories of those that have had such a big impact in the region. So that's one portion of our oral history project, and we're really excited about it. We have that multimedia room already kind of set up and ready to go for that, and it's just a matter of piecing this out, putting the program together. The second part of that, which is our community portion of our oral history project, is going to be called our Quarterly Civil Rights Stories Project, and that's going to be more of like a StoryCorps module, and the idea behind it is that we want community members to know that everyone's story is important, and we need to keep telling our story so that we can know our history and know what's going on in the area. And so we will have a day or two days um, in each quarter where we're going to invite the community to come in and they can just tell their story. Uh, there won't be any strict criteria or um, specific questions, although we'll have some just as a guiding if people want that. But we want them to have the individuality to be able to tell their stories and then we'll capture that. And then when they walk away that day, They'll have a little thumb drive with their story and kind of kind of move from there. Both of these projects are really huge to tell in the story, but this scholarly oral history project is where we're going to be leading to having a digital archives library where we'll be able to house this information, get public access to it, and then, you know, hopefully we'll get some sponsorship to be able to make that run through and run smoothly and be a space for people to continue on um, with the educational components and really excited about all that's happened in our region. Well, that's really forward thinking. And we should say, StoryCorps, move over because you guys are taking this on. And it's so <laughs> wonderful. And you're familiar with NPR StoryCorps, which is yeah. so lovely to have those stories archived for others to hear in our history. But this will be specifically to our region, which is really wonderful. When will that start or when will you step into that bucket to start recording those stories? So our goal is to start, you know, everything needs to start with design and, and project kind of development. So our goal is in the next couple months to be able to start building it out and designing it. Um, I've already touched base with some um, individuals that have experience in building these out and have archived some of the ones that worked on our own mapping projects here under the umbrella of Black Voice News um, and some of those groups. And so our goal is to start with designing it. So in the next couple months, we'll go there and then we'll just move forward. And I think once we get kind of the design and have the background, it, it'll kind of be efficient and be able to move forward from there. And do you think it might be as simple as two generations coming together, a mom and a daughter telling their story of maybe what it was like when she was growing up as opposed to the new generation growing up in the same area? Will it be as simple as that or will it be far more in depth? I think for our oral history project component that is the quarterly civil rights stories, that's where you're going to see those community portions, right? We hope that parents and their children or grandparents and they come in together and they're going to just get to speak freely on it. For our scholarly one, there are rules and regulations that even myself, I'm still really understanding on how we archive these histories. And so that one I think will be more in depth and it's going to take a little bit more design and a little bit of balance from wanting people to openly tell the stories, but also then have the criteria and to keep it you know, archived correctly and work from there. So I think it's a yes and no. I yeah. think we're going to have a lot more flexibility with the community-based ones, which also I think um, is enticing for those that are, you know, sometimes people get nervous to share their story. Yeah. But when we're coming with, there's a little less of the interview, but more just let's have a conversation. Yeah. That can really guide us to, to really opening people up to, to wanting to come see the exhibition, to come see the site, and to just keep sharing their stories. Yeah, I think that, um, just like you say, people sometimes get nervous when it's an interview and they're having a conversation with me or somebody like that. But to have it just with their grandmother or their grandparents 
and by themselves, and they're just having a communication. They're just having a conversation, and it's recorded. And some pretty soon the recording kind of goes away, even though it's still recording, the thought of it, and people yes. can really share. And then they have that for forever, which is, which is really wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I think of this the times that I've sat with my grandparents, you know, they're no longer with us, but to just sit and I know sometimes you, you know, you have a video on or whatnot and you just kind of forget about it. But the idea is to really just keep letting people be at ease to tell their stories and remind them that their stories are important. And I'm just thinking that sometimes it might just be the simple story of how my grandmother made tamales compared to how I don't make them and the importance yeah. <laughs> of it and the family, a part of it and, and what it meant and, and the whole tradition of it. So that's pretty exciting. Let me move on and talk about some of the exhibits. What kind of exhibits are you expecting? So right now we are going to probably host our inaugural one a little bit longer because we had a little bit of a delay from that October grand opening to actually officially open to the public in January. And I think for us, that's really exciting because we have a lot of interest in it, but it'll allow us to build some programming to add to what's happening here. But the goal really is to have multiple exhibits, you know, a couple times a year, and then to make sure that we are capturing different components of the community. So I don't think we're going to have the lined out absolute details, but we want to make sure, okay, if someone is putting together a proposal and we want to say, okay, we want to make sure that we are being mindful of the South Asian community and we're going to have an exhibition in 2026, whatever year it may be. So the goal is really to just kind of map out hitting the different community groups over time um, without necessarily saying we have all the details now, but yours is coming. And I think that's huge because people just want to know and, and recognize that here, civil rights are human rights, and that every community member is important, and it's just going to take us time to map out what those look like. You're listening to Lifestyles on 91.9 KVCR. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, I'll continue my conversation with Executive Director of the Civil Rights Institute Inland Southern California, Sabrina Gonzalez. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Stay with us. We'll be back in a flash. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome, and with this faith, we will go out and adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. And we will be able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. And this will be a great America. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the corner. If you're just joining us, my guest is Sabrina Gonzalez. She is the executive director of the Civil Rights Institute, Inland Southern California, which is new, and I mean new, to our community. So let's talk about the Institute is the voice of civil rights in Inland Southern California. When we talk about civil rights, which diverse groups are represented? Is this limited to race and ethnicity, or does it cover disabilities as well? So we're committed to really setting up for equal rights for all. So we say that it's regardless of race, gender, national origin, age, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. I think that sometimes in discussions, people can make assumptions about civil rights. So we want to make sure that we really are discussing civil rights are human rights. So overall, the big mission is to just be a vital center for inclusion and to memorialize our region's like civil rights history. So this is how we're going to shape our future. So we need to tell these social history stories and cultural civic engagement. 
And we need to make sure that we're kind of capturing the community as a whole, which means that we're not going to just be focused on race when we do those discussions. Great. Now, I want you to share some details about the heroes you have listed on your website. Are they all local heroes or represent the Inland Empire region and that's why they're there? Or are they national heroes? If you would share a little bit about your hero section on your website. Sure. So one of the biggest pieces about it is like some of the labeling that's kind of had and been discussed is that these are our unsung heroes. So what people forget, um, and I know this is my experience when I went to the East Coast for my undergraduate uh, schooling, was that people kind of forget where the Inland Empire is, the Inland Southern California. And so it's a little bit kind of forgotten. So the idea behind it was that we know that there is more than the 27 of our heroes that are uh, cemented in our walk of fame around our building. But it was a good starting point. And we wanted to make sure that we we're capturing different components and different individuals. So most of these individuals um, have both a regional impact, a statewide impact. Some have had international or across the, re- um, across the nation. And so for us, it was really just capturing the different ones and trying to say, okay, it started here. Look at the impact they have, and there's so much more to know about them. Um, and so we're still building out a digital component to this, which means that every single person that is currently on our, you know, the 27 that are on our Walk of Fame, we will then have a digital component that everybody that comes in can then kind of deep dive into the story and the lives of these individuals. And the goal is every two years we'll have a nomination process because we recognize that there are more than just the 27 that we currently have where people will be able to nominate, discuss, and talk about these leaders that are in our area and the big impacts that they've had. So there is a physical walk of fame. I was just looking on the website, but is there literally you see these names yes. somewhere? Can you can you share that or paint that picture for me since this is radio? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So um, as you enter the building, so we have Mission Heritage Plaza as a whole. And as you go around, starting on the far end of where Fair Housing is on Mission Inn Avenue, and you'll start, and it starts with our first individual. So we have, um, we start with Santos Manuel, and you make your way, and it kind of gives you a little brief description of who they are. So when you're looking down, it's a, a big paver, and it has their name and kind of some contributions and then who underwrote for them on that. And then you keep walking. And so constantly outside my window, I see people walking and just staring at the ground nice. to kind of learn more information. And it goes around the building. One of the visionaries and the vice president of our board, she has a big goal and has mentioned it, that we're going to take this walk of fame, you know, down to City Hall. <laughs> um, so we, we, we tease about that, but we already see the excitement. It's really lovely to look out my window and see a family member taking a selfie with the paver and just the excitement to, to have that and continue to have that. And to also just know that we're highlighting those that had such an impact that maybe not everyone's aware of. Very cool. Now, let me ask this question. Two more questions. How are you funded and how many employees are doing this work? So we are um, funded in multiple ways. So we had our partnership organizations. We really came out of uh, an idea, again, from these visionaries uh, before my time, and I feel very grateful to be a part of it now, uh, that built us out through Rosemays and Lala Acharya, and you'll see them, you know, a plaque on our building designating that. And they worked together with Fair Housing to build Civil Rights Institute with Wakeland for this project to go above. But we have about 18 different funders, some at the state level, regional level. This construction cost, Mission Heritage Plaza, was about $47 million. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, so it's a big cost. Um, We have gotten sponsorships from Bank of America, Riverside African American Historical Society, uh, Fair Housing Council, Riverside County, Altero Credit Union, M&L Hong Foundation, Riverside County Bar Association, and just a few others, Kathy Wright and Dwight Tate. Um, And the idea was Riverside City, uh, Riverside County, the Housing Authority, um, and the community. When there was a call for donations and what's happening, the community really, really showed up and are continuing to show up, and we're seeing that funding. Um, we also are going to work towards big grants. So we have a grant from um, the Irvine Foundation. Mm. We are working together with other groups to hopefully touch on base with something from the Mellon, Inland Empire. You know, we, we really are focusing on a variety of funders, uh, state funding. We have the Jose Medina Atrium. Um, with his strong work to go at the state level to bring, I believe, $3.5 million to this project as well. Right. Um, so when we say it's a community effort, we truly mean that it's been a community effort and so many people coming in to continue to fund and, and work through this project. For future funding, we, we are building out some, hopefully, some annual events that are going to happen to be fundraisers for us. We are working on grant applications. And the next part of your question is currently um, our only staff is me. So <laughs> I, I giggle thought. a little bit in a sense. So I am the executive director. I am personal assistant. I am no, and I, I tease, but no, I have wonderful. We have some volunteer consultants that have been just amazing. We have volunteers that come in to help run this. We've connected with you know Fair Housing supports us in ways as we're in the same building, and I have a super engaged and very active board. I cannot thank them enough for, you know, still taking all of my calls and jumping in and being excited to be on committees to work through next steps and build this out. Um, and I'm just really, really grateful for all of them, the respect and pride, you know, making it all happen and work together. But officially, technically, it is one staff member um, with me as the executive director. Well, that's terrific. At least you can't yeah. fire yourself, right? So <laughs> that's great. Okay. Well, we're still building out. We're going to have, hopefully, we'll be hiring soon, and we kind of work from there. All right. Let me reintroduce my guest to Sabrina Gonzalez. She's the executive director for the Civil Rights Institute Inland Southern California. Okay, now I'd like you to share a little bit about your background and how your journey led to you leading this organization. Okay, thank you. So I have a, an interesting background. I always say everything is a journey. Um, so I'm actually from Harupa Valley, uh, now named Harupa Valley, but originally it was called uh, Mariloma, Historic Mariloma now, as it's dubbed. And so I had a lot of excitement. I come from a really close-knit, very engaged family. And my parents had us um, really involved in the community, whether it was sports or school or after school or you know community service projects. And so I always joke to say that, like, the community raised me. Um, And so I actually went off to college on the East Coast. I went to Boston University and um, gained a lot of perspective, learned a lot about um, educational disadvantages and the shifts and the change and a lot of culture shock to go from uh, being a Southern Californian to a Bostonian over some time. So from there, from my time from there, I was an undergrad for biology. Then I moved in and learned a lot of transferable skills, and I spent a lot of community time. So I stepped out of the grounds of Boston University to really get invested in community elements um, to feel a little bit more at home and and build that community for myself. With that, I started working in youth professionalism. um, And then I found myself back home in 2008, 2009. And I really fell in love with our academic and educational scene. So I was a substitute teacher and really started diving heavily into how do we support the community 
And I moved back to Boston, um, and I was a uh, senior teacher counselor. So that allowed us to really get involved with young people, but also capacity building and building skills around how do we continue to grow and evolve and learn and be productive citizens. Um, and so that really guided me back. Um, I spent some time in international education. But I think throughout all of that work, I was really excited about advocacy for ourselves, building self-efficacy, and really being enthralled and engaged in what it means to be a member of a community and building each other up. Um, And so when this opportunity, when I came back to uh, Riverside and this opportunity showed itself, I thought it was just a perfect mix of all the work that I've done in in directing an international program and in working with young people with um, variety of social economic backgrounds. And for five years in Boston, I was actually working in a situation that was similar where I worked in the middle of housing for um, programming. So to be right in affordable housing and to be on the forefront of pushing the the need for that is really exciting for me. Um, And I'm just excited to be here and to continue to push forward advocacy. How do we see ourselves and how do we keep building capacity in the communities that need it most? Okay, so you went from Southern California to Boston, back here, back to Boston. Are you staying with us for a while? Yeah. The the funny story is that um, my grandmother called me and she said, Mija, it's time to come home. And I said, okay, Grandma, um, tomorrow? And she said, be home by end of summer. So I walked into work the next day and I said, I have to leave in three months. I will get you set up. I've been with you for five, almost six years. And I will get you all set up. I will make sure like the families and community feels good about my departure. But my grandma said to come home. And so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> That's beautiful. Sabrina, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and getting to know more about the Civil Rights Institute Inland Southern California. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And can I do one last little plug? Because I know it's a kind of a confusing name, but I just want to let everyone know we are going to be doing programming, exhibitions. We have open hours, Thursdays and Fridays from 12 to 5. And we really hope people come out and visit us and, and check it out and, you know, really enjoy their time with us. We shall overcome. To learn more about the Civil Rights Institute, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles and click on today's show. a segment idea, share it with us. We'd love to hear what you think would make a good segment on Lifestyles. Go to kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles and click on the link to share your story idea. That's our show for this week. To hear any of our past shows, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles. You can also listen to Lifestyles on your favorite streaming service. Search for Lifestyles with Lillian Vasquez and take the show on the go. Lifestyles is on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us at 919lifestyles and search for Lifestyles with Lillian on Instagram. Or go to kvcrnews.org lifestyles and click on the social media icons at the top of the page. Thanks to all who helped to make this show possible, including Sharina Wad, David Fleming, Sean Houlihan, Natasha Coles, and executive producer Rick Dulock. 
Our theme music is provided by Ethan Bortnick. Join me next week at the same time for Life Sales with me, Lillian Vasquez. Bye for now. Yeah, the simple things in